You, you, you are listening. You are listening. You are listening to the Fly Fishing ninety seven podcast. A lot of fly. I'm, I'm not a great believer in the fly. It's to me, it's all about how you fish the fly, where you fish it, how deep you fish it, what you do with it. The fly itself, to me, is a secondary thing. Uh, definitely. I mean, I'm, I'm on social media a lot, and uh, and I'm looking at the flies people are tying up, and there's amazing patterns that people tie. Um, but the thing is, when I'm fishing nowadays, the more I fish, the less importance I give to the fly. And anybody who thinks that the fly is the be-all and end-all, sadly, in my opinion, is never going to get to the pinnacle. They never will, because it's how you fish it. It's far more important. If I could have my perfect fishing day it would be flat calm bright sun okay because most fish love flat calms they love bright sun and flat calm together um, fishermen don't so i don't want to fish when the fishermen like the conditions i want to fish when the fish like the conditions and in a flat calm most people are beaten before they even get out the car parks to go fishing in a match because the fishing won't be easy but you normally get rising fish so if you think of a scenario of um of having a look over a lake with a first thing in the morning, nine o'clock day in the morning, flat calm, and you'll see fish rising in the middle of the lake. Wherever you are in the world, they always seem to rise in the middle of the lake. So if you're in a boat, a rising fish means a feeding fish. You can catch them. If you're not good enough to catch them, that's your fault. And I love the team sports, which is the team element of fishing for your country or a club team or something like that. And, um, and so you can get together because I love the – the actual fishing itself, I like the nervousness of getting ready for it and going out and competing. And then I think you've got to be a good winner and a good loser as well with all sports because you're never going to win all the time. you just got to hope you can do well and give your best all the time. Um, but I think whenever I go fishing, if I've had a great day, I think, great, I can't wait to go back and do it again. If I've had a bad day, I'm so annoyed. By the time I'm driving home, I'm thinking of things what I could have done to make things different to have got a better result not just with competitions but with any fishing you know how could i have caught more fish why did xyz in that boat over there catch more fish than me what were they doing that i wasn't doing because if if i'm catching that's fine if i'm not catching it's my fault it's not the fish's fault it's not my boat partner's fault it's mm. probably where i am it's probably to do with the weather conditions that they're not feeding but if they're feeding and people are catching and i'm not then i'm doing something wrong and that's my whole philosophy on it. So then I try to work out what I was doing wrong to try and put it right for next time. And I was taught by somebody in the past said, never leave a water wishing you'd done something. Always give it a go. Even if it takes five, ten minutes to do, give it a go. But you can certainly, sometimes the whole key, when we're doing um, a debriefing session, say, on a practice day before a match, and there's an England team with, say, 14 anglers in it, what I do is go around the table and tell everybody to how they fish their day and most people all they want to know is what fly we're using what color is that tag what what rib is it and then somebody might say okay i was using uh, a three foot midge tip slow sinking tip and i was leaving it 15 seconds then retrieving it mm -hmm. that is your most important bit of information and that's the bit that most people don't listen to so if i'm a team captain or a manager i never ever let people see the flies and put them on the table until we finished our debriefing. Because if you put the flies on the table, all they'll do is look at the flies and they won't listen to the advice. And most of the time, the advice is far more important than the fly. You get any old bit of shit down there in the right place, that fish will eat it. We're going to be joined by none other than John Horsey uh, out of Somerset County 
in the UK. Uh, John has over 30 years guiding as a professional guide and a very extremely competitive fly fisher uh, from the World Championships, uh, British champion angler. So many nuggets in this one. I really enjoyed sitting down with John to chat. But what I want to let you know, too, is that you can actually ask him your own questions and you can actually listen in to a Zoom call meeting style uh, fly fishing school on January 22nd, 2022. That's happening uh, this Saturday. So basically um, what, what it is, 2 p.m. Eastern on Saturday, uh, 7 p.m. UK time, 8 p.m. Spain, and 6 a.m. Sydney time on the 23rd. But uh, look for the 22nd in North America. Simply go to Smart Angling Inc. and you can look at this seminar. It's very reasonable and I'm sure there's going to be lots of nuggets. So have a look at smartangling.com. You can sign up for the John Horsey website. There's more too if you're into uh, moving water and whatnot. Evo has uh, quite a few seminars coming up over the next few months. So check them out. I want to thank the uh, top cities for downloads this week. Number one slot is Nashville, Tennessee. Thanks for all the downloads, folks. Uh, followed by Chattanooga, Tennessee. Then Los Angeles, California. Then we've got Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Oswego, New York. We've got Dutch John, Utah. Mount Vernon, Washington. Sydney, Australia. Melbourne, Australia. And Seattle, Washington. Thanks so much for listening, folks. Really appreciate it. We've got John Horsey teed up for you next. Welcome to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast, featuring interviews with passionate people within the fly fishing industry. We focus on guides, conservation, resort managers, gear, and talented fly tires bringing usable information to fly fishers. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by The Fly Crate. Theflycrate.com is your source for all things fly fishing. The Fly Crate offers a monthly fly club. We select patterns every month for your home waters. With membership, you'll receive flies created to match the hatch in your area, along with the Fly Crate's guide magazine, the convenience of having flies delivered right to your door, some sweet stickers. Discover new patterns and start stocking your fly boxes now. Theflycrate.com. Here's your host, Mark Hopley. Why don't we start at the very beginning for you? So how did you come to discover fly fishing? Walk us through that journey um, just a little bit. Right. When I was six years old, uh, my brother, Jeff, who's uh, older than me, he made me a fishing rod and put a, um, a handle on it, cork handle, and we had a little fishing reel. And he made me the fishing rod out of a bamboo cane from the garden. And he whipped some eyes on it. He put some corks for a handle, which we got from a, a family holiday on the beach. And we had this old fishing reel with some um, monofill, it would have been at the time. And he made me this rod so I could fish for eels in the ditch at the back of the garden, at the back of our house where we used to live. And that's how I started fishing. <laughs> okay, I haven't heard that one yet. Um, <laughs> is, that a, is that a British thing, fishing for eels? That's something that I, I'm... I've heard of it. I, I've ha I, you know what? I had a gentleman on from Fly Fish in Wales, and I think he told me something similar. <laughs> but go ahead. It's very strange because we used to be able to catch an eel no matter what happened. So if you can, couldn't catch anything else, this is what we call coarse fishing as opposed to uh, right. fly fishing. So this is where you use bait and floats and that sort of thing. So if we fished in uh, the local drainage ditches across our fields uh, because I lived on the Somerset level. So they were very, they used to get flooded a lot, these fields. So there were drainage ditches cut out by the farmers to allow the, 
the water to get away. And we used to fish on these little ditches um, for eels. And you could always catch an eel if you put a worm on. Sadly, there's been a big problem with a virus that's infected the eels. And, and also, I think, due to the Gulf Stream moving up and below the UK, the eels aren't finding the way back from the Sargasso Sea spawning grounds like they used to. And we used to get millions and millions of Elvis come back and they used to come up these drainage ditches and find their way to big rivers and things hmm. where they grow to 30, 40 years old. But wow. we've got big problems. So they're becoming an endangered species. So there's not very many people that actually fish for eels anymore. But uh, when I was a kid, everybody could catch an eel. You put a worm on wherever you were fishing in a lake, in a river, in a canal, in a ditch, you catch an eel. So that's what we did. So you can thank those eels for starting that that obsession for all things fishing for you. Is that? Uh... Uh, yeah, that's completely it. So my brother, uh, who ne who doesn't fish and never has done, he eats the fish that I catch, but um, he's never really fished. He taught me how to fish, um, taught me a love of the countryside. Hmm. Um, we lived in a big old council estate on the outskirts of a town called Bridgewater in uh, in the UK. Yeah. And uh, so we used to be able to walk up the fields. So it was a real sort of childhood, which was an adventure every day. So you just mentioned your brother. So I have a feeling I always like to find out who kind of got you where you are, because we've all had mentors. And now you mentor literally thousands, I'm sure, whether you're aware of it or not. And I know you're aware of it because you're so sharing with your information. Um, and we're going to talk about everything still water. We're going to, gee, I, I got so many questions for you, John. I don't even know where to start, <laughs> but <laughs> first off, tell me who influenced you. Who did you learn from? Who do you look up to? Um, when I started fly fishing, cause I didn't start fly fishing until I was probably in my twenties or maybe yeah, middle to late twenties. Cause I didn't like my job very much. I worked as an, a, uh, custom management accounting, organizing budgets for power stations across the UK. And uh, every day was a grind, to be honest. So fishing got me away from this. But once I met a chap called Dave Reardon at work, um, he was already uh, a fly angler. He taught me how to cast. He taught me how to tie my first fly. And as soon as I took up fly fishing, there was sort of no way back to course fishing for me. It was sort of the ultimate. And once you learn how to cast and you can cast, um, the rest of it, you just go from step to step. You know, now we're fishing not just for trout, we're fishing for huge pike, for different saltwater species. And it's just a great way of doing it. So Dave Reardon was, um, he was, after my brother taught me to fish full stop and gave me the interest, it was Dave that then took me on to the fly fishing level. And some of my friends around here, like Les Toogood, um, he was really good sharing angry. I find that with fly fishing, people are quite happy to share information mm -hmm. a lot more than the sort of course fishing guys do so i've had a lot of help from people like that so uh, and people like brian ledbetter who was uh world champion in the past you know uh, he was one of my guys i looked up to sure. although he's shorter than me so i could actually look down on him but still looked up to him if you know <laughs> what i mean <laughs> but like, Leddy like... was great he was good so what about tying? So, um, you know, what's interesting to me, John, is I talked to a lot of people that found tying after fly fishing, which kind of seems to be, I, I don't want to say the normal evolution, but did you start tying early on or was that something you came to later? No, it's funny. When Dave Reardon taught me how to cast, he lent me a rod that I could practice with. I also went round to his house and he taught me how to tie a black and peacock spider. And uh, so that's the first fly I ever taught. And as soon as he taught me that, I sort of took to both at the same time. 
So I was a complete beginner in fishing. I was a complete beginner in fly tying. But I sort of moved along at the same rate and I've got a real interest in both. But I must admit, it's really the fishing that interests me nowadays. The fly tying I do a lot of, it's because I've got to, not because I can't wait to get home at night and tie flies. Because once I've been out in the water all day, the last thing I want to do really is sit down and start tying 20 flies. You know, like right. two or three is fine. But I'm a slow tire, as all my fishing mates would tell you. <laughs> Can I ask you this, John? So, like, for me, like, I'm in a, I'm in Canada. Obviously, you're joining us from from the UK. Um, there's almost yep. like a tying season, and I, I, I know it's not always like that everywhere. Because in warmer climates, you know, it's kind of a year round thing, or you tie when you tie. But I definitely do my tying from like say November to February because the snow is flying. You know, a lot of the, the still waters are 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 seriously still. I mean, they're frozen, they're locked up. Um, when do you do your tying? Do you do it before competitions? Do you do it in the winter? Right. I do it on an as, um, as you need to basis. So when we had the lockdown, I actually tied more flies last year during lockdown than I've tied for the last 20 years, probably. Yeah. So I actually filled up my dry fly box. And the thing is I concentrated on a lot of fly. I'm, I'm not a great believer in the fly. It's, to me, it's all about how you fish the fly, where you fish it, how deep you fish it, what you do with it. The fly itself, to me, is a secondary thing. Wow. The only thing that I give a lot of credit to is my dry flies, things like hoppers, bob's bits, carrot flies. Mm -hmm. They're the three main dry flies I use wherever I fish on still waters anywhere in the world. So I thought I'd just fill those boxes up because they take me quite a long time to tie. The bobs bits don't, they're dead easy, but the hoppers take me quite a long time. So I filled a box of hoppers and I went through the whole of last season without using all of them. So I tied quite <laughs> a lot last year. Well, that I think you might be nailing something right there because we do get locked into our patterns. You know, you, your, your imagination starts going, you start putting different color ribs on, you don't know when to stop. Yep. Next thing you know, you're sitting down, yep. you got all these things you may or may not use. Did you find that with, um, I know with, with COVID and, and, you know, a lot of people staying home, a lot of people having more time, those patterns that I'm seeing, some of them are just unbelievable. I think in the last two years, tying has got a lot better. W would you agree with that? Uh, definitely. I mean, I'm, I'm on social media a lot and, uh, and I'm looking at the flies people are tying up and there's amazing patterns that people tie. Um, but the thing is when I'm fishing nowadays, the more I fish, the less importance I give to the fly and anybody who thinks that the fly is the be all and end all sadly, in my opinion, is never going to get to the pinnacle. They never will because it's how you fish it. It's far more important. Yeah, I love it. And we're going to talk all about that. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> I'm a little, uh, I got a frog in the throat. It's pretty early here. Um, we <laughs> have got John Horsey on the line. Um, really, really grateful that John is joining us. World a champion angler, literally, and really big in the fly fishing competitive scene. It's amazing how much your name has come up with people I have had on this show from all walks of life and from lots of different countries. Um, that, that's one thing, John, that I've really done in the last little bit. Look, I am, I'm no competitive angler by any stretch. I'm just have a lot of passion, but I know that you guys are always on the cutting edge. And for me, that is the 
easiest place for us to learn the most from. I think a lot of people miss, you know, they'll look back at the history and they'll look back at some of the latest patterns, but to, to see what's going on in the competitive scene, what got you started in that? Like, how did you get the juices flowing when it comes to the competitive end of things? Right. I've always, um, been a sporting person. So I used to play semi-pro football when I was, um, when I was younger um, but I never, and I always, the whole thing that's influenced my life is wanting to represent my country at something. And so if I played football, I wanted to be an England footballer. If I played cricket, I wanted to be an England cricketer. I got to county standards, which is the next level down from sort of representing your country. But as a cricketer, I wasn't tall enough to be a fast bowler. And um, I think I probably wasn't brave enough to face somebody bowling at 90 odd miles an hour at me and dropping it short of a length. So I was a bit scared of real fast bowlers so hmm. cricket i got to a fairly good standard football i got to a pretty good standard i played squash to a pretty good standard but then when i was fishing i was reading when i was at work a fishing magazine and it talked about fishing for england fly fishing so what i did then is i thought well i reckon i if i go through all the qualifiers i might be able to represent my country at fishing fly fishing yeah. so that's what started to drive me so then i started to fish competitions i entered a, a national um, eliminator on Chew Valley Lake, my home water. And I remember I was in the final eliminator. There were 40 anglers fishing. There were 13 places up for grabs at the national, which is the final heat before you get into the England team. So there were 40 of us. We'd already had to go through two heats to get there. And in the match, I, yeah, I think it was 30, 13 places. And I caught one brown trout and it was on an intermediate line and the fly was <laughs> i think it, i think it was a mallard and claret and i caught this one pound one ounce brown trout and that got me 13th place because everybody else blanked in the competition so i got to the national at rutland and there were 100 people in the national and i caught 15 fish on the match day and came fifth and got into the england team so that one brown trout i caught on chew was probably one of the most memorable fish I've ever caught because it got me to the national where I had a really good day, got into the England team. And since then I've represented England more times than any other angler in the history of fly fishing. Wow. So I'm on something like my 48th cap now. So I'm really hoping to get to 50 and I've been in a world champion winning team, world championship winning team. I've been third individual in the world, second and third individual in the European championships. I've been national rivers champion in this country, national lock style champion, but I still love it just as much as I did back then. And I still love competitions and I love the fear factor that makes you fish better. And that that's the whole thing about it. You really do need to be, um, on your metal during a competition. You need to practice for it. The more practice you get, the better it is. I'd say to anybody, my best bit of advice to anybody is if you're in a match practice, if you're going to have a day's practice, great. If you can have a week's practice, even better. Yeah. Well, well said. And I think that that speaks volumes. I'm sure you see this a lot when you go to other countries around the world that are hosting the world championships. Um, those anglers that fish those lakes, their home waters are going to know it better than anyone. Has, has that been your experience? Yeah. The, the only problem with world championships is that there are a few countries that are very good on still water techniques, but almost all the countries are good on rivers. So you go to a lot of Eastern European countries and you might find that there's out of the five sessions, four river sessions, and then they'll put a, a lake session in. 
and it will be a boating lake where there's never been any trout and they might stick a thousand stocky rainbows in mm -hmm. so you've then got to try in five sessions the so first sessions it's slaughter everybody catches everything there then after that the fish turn off uh, or they've been caught and they don't want to be caught again and then by the last session you're trying to save a blank and really there's no advantage to the really good lock style anglers on that because you're not getting methods to work mm. but if you go to somewhere like um, new zealand australia um, anywhere england scotland ireland wales canada places with great lakes with real fish then the knowledge that people have got who are good lock style anglers will really come to the fore um, like in tasmania where um, england as a team didn't get in the medals but howard croston got the individual uh, gold medal because that sort of suits our fishing and the problem with world championships it's so it should be called the world river fishing championships because I, I seriously believe although i've fished in a lot of world championships i think that they've only they only have five sessions and you could have five river sessions you mm -hmm. never have five lake sessions no one ever does that but right. they're quite happy the organizing committees are quite happy to let them have five um, river sessions but i would say to have a, a real fair world championship you should make it six sessions there's no reason you can't have six you could have six anglers in the team instead of five so you have three on lakes three on rivers that way you get the genuine world champions who are good at both and i think there's a few things that need to be done to be changed for that i, I love what you're saying that's uh that is a well-rounded angler and you just described something interesting to me when you said uh you know like you start these competitions, say you're fishing stockies on a reservoir, it's lights out for the first few days, and then all of a sudden nobody can scratch your fish to the end. That is like every lake that I know opening season when the ice pulls back. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Oh, that's funny. Hey, I want to take some time to get to know you off the water. Are you ready for a few kind of off-the-cuff questions? Yeah, yeah, fine. All right. Um, let's talk tunes. Are you a music guy? So if you're headed to your uh, in your truck or your vehicle, wherever you're going, uh, if you're guiding yeah. or doing some personal time on the water, what's playing on the stereo for the most part? Right. Spotify for a start, because yeah. although I love my music, Spotify is great at being able to pick some of the, your favorite tracks off of different albums and then mix them up and have a listen. But I'm a big Neil Young fan. Mm. Um, I'm a big David Bowie fan. I went to see David Bowie 10 days before he killed off Ziggy Stardust. And I've actually still got the, the list of the songs that he did and it was in a in an odeon which is a a picture house yeah. um near to where i used to live and he did an afternoon matinee performance and then an evening performance hmm. we watched him on the evening performance uh, you never you know these big stars would never do two performances in a day now but yeah. they did back then and so bowie's great um somebody i really like uh arcade fire i like canadian hmm. music these guys are really good um but Lou Reed, people like that. Oh, so yeah. I've got pretty, I've got pretty good uh, sort of music taste. My brother is into his blues music. He's a vet by trade, but uh, he loves his blues music and he sings in a blues band. So he's sort of, I like anything from old Muddy Waters stuff all the way through to fairly new stuff. I but love, as a person who's it. getting older, I, I, I don't like a lot of the uh, rap music and that. I'm not really into too much, but um, even some of that's okay. I tell you, um, you're hitting some stops here for me too. Lou Reed is just he he I oh man, I love that guy. He he sets a stage like and nobody sounds like Lou. <laughs> no. No. I went I went to see him, funnily enough, with both my sons. So uh uh while he was still alive, I went to see him in the Hammersmith Apollo in, in London. Mm 
Right. And he did something like 11, 12 songs, one encore song, then went and went off to Paris to do it again. But he was just fantastic and uh, great, great loss. He's gone now, same, same as David Bowie. But, you know, his music lives on. He's still fantastic. My wife wouldn't agree. She thinks he can't sing. He's got a terrible voice and all the rest of it, but never mind. <laughs> Do you know what? I think the best and most famous singers on in rock cannot sing. Like if, if you start thinking, <laughs> has Bob Dylan got a great voice? Has, has Did Tom Petty have a great voice? Does Does Lou Reed have a great voice? Does, does Axel no, Rose right. have a great voice? Yeah, no, you're right. You're dead right. Yeah, I think sound... that's what makes them original, though, isn't it? Exactly. Exactly. Um. This is going to be a weird question because you just kind of told me, I'm not going to say the fly doesn't matter, but I'm going to put you on the spot and I'm going to ask you two questions. If you're hitting your favorite still water, what's, what's the one pattern you're reaching for more often than not? Um, it would have to be dependent on the weather. That's, that's the key to all fishing. And it, anywhere I've fished in the world, when people say the weather doesn't matter, you know, if it's bright and sunny and windy, the fish still feed. That's actually a lot of crap. Most of the time, sun and wind is a kiss of death. They don't feed in any country I've ever been in. You might get fish feeding in sun and wind if there's a fall of terrestrials or something like that, which you might get in Tasmania. But that's very rare for something like that to happen. So it would have to be related to what weather conditions. If we've got anything from a flat, if I could have my perfect fishing day, mm -hmm. it would be flat, calm, bright sun. Okay. Because most fish love flat calms. They love bright sun and flat calm together. Um, fishermen don't. So I don't want to fish when the fishermen like the conditions. I want to fish when the fish like the conditions. And in a flat calm, most people are beaten before they even get out of the car parks to go fishing in a match because the fishing won't be easy, but you normally get rising fish. So if you think of a scenario of, um, of having a look over a lake with a first thing in the morning, nine o'clock in the morning, flat calm, and you'll see fish rising in the middle of the lake. Wherever you are in the world, they always seem to rise in the middle of the lake. So if you're in a boat, a rising fish means a feeding fish. You can catch them. If you're not good enough to catch them, that's your fault. <laughs> you know, the fish are feeding. They're showing you where they are and dries are the way to catch those fish. So my first fish, my first favorite fly without a doubt is a ginger hopper, which I've used all over the world. And I've caught fish all over the world with that. It's a fantastic fly, um, but it's not an American type hopper. It is uh, an English style hopper, which was designed by John Moore of Grafham Fly Fishers years ago. So it's like a mini daddy long legs, um, oh, but okay. it's a little bit better than that. So it sits in the film. And uh, so that's my favorite dry fly. I think if I was fishing where I had to fish sinking lines for whatever reason, it would be um, some sort of a, a black and green lure with marabou or um, fur in it. If it was an international rules competition, all our flies, we can't use flies that are bigger than five eighths of an inch hook or 15 sixteenths of an inch overall dress size. So we can't use woolly buggers with beads on the head, anything like that in our domestic competitions. We're not allowed. Hmm. So when we get the world championships and we can use three inch woolly buggies, it's easy, you know, <laughs> piece of cake. Um, but that sort of thing for fish that don't want it, a black or black and green woolly bugger is difficult to beat. Uh, and nymph wise, probably a dialback nymph is my favorite fly. Yeah. So that's three different flies for three different conditions. So if the fish are feeding, be something like a dialback. If they're on dries, it'd be a hopper. And if they were not wanted to do anything, it'd be a black or an all black or a black with a little bit of green woolly bugger type fly. I can hear everybody hitting the vice right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, favorite place to talk fly fishing. So 
where do you get your fix? Like, is it when you do these seminars? Is it when you're in competition? Is it when you're in a fly shop? Where do you get your, let's not say, let's take competition out of it actually, because then you're truly on yep. the water. But when you're not on the water, John, where do you get your fix? Um, what other things? I love football. Um, so I watch football. I watch the sports channel on Sky Sports all the time. Um, I like decent films, but good films. Um, I don't like many of the, what we call soaps in our country. I can't be bothered to watch anything like that. Um, uh, but I like, uh, some good TV. I like to go out for a beer. Um, I take my wife out when I can. The thing is when I was working as an accountant, fishing was my relaxation and my get away from it all. Mm -hmm. Now I fish for a living when I'm not actually working. I probably don't go fishing. So I'll do other things, you know, work on the house, go out with my wife, do things like that. Um, go and watch a rugby match. We live very close to Bath and Bath rugby have been a fantastic team over the years. I watch England rugby. I like most sports supporting my own country. Mm -hmm. I love it. Football, rugby, cricket. Uh, at the moment, I want to see Djokovic kicked out of uh, Australia because <laughs> I think he's taken the mickey out of other tennis players and people who are being careful. And I think he thinks he's above the law. So at the moment, I'm not very keen on that bloke. So, yeah. But I take an interest in all those sort of things, you know. And I think, you know, at the moment, we're going to see such a, there's so many people have died, millions of people around the world from COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, there are ways that we can try and avoid that and stop it happening, hopefully, now with vaccinations. And I can't understand for the life of me why somebody in such a prominent position like Djokovic isn't more sensible and is, you know, being irresponsible, in my opinion. So I'm quite opinionated on things as well. I love it. I love it. Um, I never shy away from opinions. I think they're important. <laughs> Everyone's got one. Um, yeah. Let's talk sports teams. So um, you say you're not that far from Bath. Um, who's yep. your Who's your go-to club? Or, you know, whether it's rugby, football, cricket. Um, is I mean, I, it sounds to me like you're, you're a real, you know, you're pulling for England a lot. But is there a specific... Yep. Um, club whether when it comes to say division one or, or or premier league sorry okay well my favorite team of football since i've been a little kid probably less than 10 years old uh is leeds united so leeds united are in the premiership they got promoted last season we're having terrible problems with injuries this year and the main thing is we want to try and stay in the premiership so we're fighting hard um if we can get some of our key players back uh we should uh, be able to stay up in the premiership and then build on that. But Leeds, it's nowhere near where I lived. I just had a football album for Christmas back in about 1967. I can still remember the names of all the Leeds players in the photograph. So it's a bit sad, but <laughs> I've been a Leeds United fanatic you know, as far as long as I can remember. And uh, rugby-wise, I'm a Bath rugby supporter. Yeah. And cricket-wise, I'm Somerset County because that's the county I live in. Yeah. That's where Ian Botham used to play years ago, and, and Viv Richards and um, and Joel Garner, those guys, fantastic cricketers. I got two cricket bats on my wall here, and I can't tell you, John, how many people come to the house and they're like, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> my, my family's actually from the Midlands, so I'm, and my dad was uh, kind of semi-pro cricket back in the day. That was his passion. So, um, oh, brilliant. Yeah, good stuff. They, they moved out here in the, the late 60s from... Uh, from well i say birmingham it's actually walsall which uh, not a lot you might yeah. know it but nobody over here knows it yeah i know it yeah that sort of area all in the black country yeah but um yeah 
uh, around the Birmingham area, Wolverhampton, yeah. Walsall, all that area. Yeah. Yeah. Know. There's a, and uh, my son went to university in um, in Birmingham. Oh, nice. And uh, so he was very close to Edgebaston, which is where we have big cricket test matches played. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's, yeah, great. So if you had to sit back and think about what fly fishing does for you, I like to ask people their biggest lesson, but... In my mind, when I ask that question, it kind of like you have to take a step back and think, why do I do this? Why do I? It's all consuming for you. It sounds to me like you value your time off the water as much as you do on because you're on it a lot. But what does fly fishing bring to your world, John? Well, it's a big question, really. I know. Um, I know it's so fishing as a when I from a little kid, I'm sort of six years old, all fishing was important to me it was something that when i was doing things i didn't want to do or maybe i was in the dentist chair getting a fill in which i was terrified of i'd be trying to think of fishing and the next time i went fishing it either gets you or it doesn't um fishing just got to me and got into my blood and although i love the other sports and things as well fishing was the thing that i could always sort of go back to and you can actually fish on your own or you can fish with people and i love the team sports which is the team element fishing for your country or a club team or something like that and um and so you can get together because i love the the actual fishing itself i like the nervousness of getting ready for it and going out and competing and then i think you've got to be a good winner and a good loser as well with all sports because you're never going to win all the time you just got to hope you can do well and give your best all the time um but i think whenever i go fishing if i've had a great day i think great i can't wait to go back and do it again if i've had a bad day I'm so annoyed. By the time I'm driving home, I'm thinking of things, what I could have done to make things different, to have got a better result, not just with competitions, but with any fishing. You know, how could I have caught more fish? Why did X, Y, Z in that boat over there catch more fish than me? What were they doing that I wasn't doing? Because if, if I'm catching, that's fine. If I'm not catching, it's my fault. It's not the fish's fault. It's not my boat partner's fault. It's probably where I am. It's probably to do with the weather conditions that they're not feeding. But if they're feeding and people are catching and I'm not, then I'm doing something wrong. And that's my whole philosophy on it. So then I try to work out what I was doing wrong to try and put it right for next time. And I was taught by somebody in the past said, never leave a water wishing you'd done something. Always give it a go. Even if it takes five, ten minutes to do, give it a go. Ooh, that's a great quote. Huh. I like that. I like what you said about... Um the way i verbalize it, winning with grace losing with grace you know like yeah that, that's something i always try to drill into my kids nobody hates the, the worst thing in my world that i see is and i see it in the world of professional sports a sore winner holy man is yeah. that nothing gets me going like that and and you just mentioned Djokovic, but i'm not i'm not gonna go there because he gets my blood going sometimes that's <laughs> And uh, mine, and mine. I just, yeah, and there's other people as well. And you think, you know, people like Lionel Messi. I remember when he lost in the World Cup final, and he was just like a little sport brat. Well, his team weren't good enough. Simple as that. So you've, you know, he's done so much in the sport. He's such a good player, but he's not going to win all the time because it's not just a one-person sport. It's probably nowadays 15 or 16 people in an 11-man team. And there's no charity whatsoever from him. And I thought, you know, you're a real bad loser. So that probably reflects on the sort of person you are as well. And yeah. I can't stand it when the commentators say, oh, yeah, he hates losing. Yeah, nobody likes losing. But you've got to. Somebody's got to win. Somebody's got to lose. So if you can have some sort of, you know, charitable uh, mm -hmm. 
acceptance to other people who do well when you don't do so well. I know it's annoying, but you just got to get on with it. It's part of life. And I, I hate bad losers. And like you say, miserable winners are even worse. <laughs> <laughs> You're coming up with some great quotes today. I'm loving it. Um, let's talk about, about jobs. Now, I have a feeling this is an easy one for you. You mentioned you did some accounting back in the day. You're full-time yeah. immersed in the fly fishing world now. What's the best gig you've had? Are you doing it? Without a doubt, yeah. Hmm. I remember when I first took this up, I thought if I could just, because I had to leave my job that I'd been working in for quite a long time. And uh, this is when Margaret Thatcher, the conservatives were running the country and she was sort of trying to break the back of all the unions and privatize um, water companies, electricity companies. And I worked for a massive nationalized industry, uh, which was at the time a job for life really. But she came in and privatized and sold off all our main assets in such a way that we don't own anything now anymore. You know, this is the legacy that that, that woman gave us. I'm not keen on her either, but there we are. Um, so I had to leave. Uh, it was sort of getting bums off seats. And that's when I, um, I went to Bristol water and asked them if they would take me on for a year and my company would pay my salary. Um, so they get me for nothing for a year, but all I wanted to do is find out if there was any, um, they could teach me um, the sort of fundamentals of fishery management. But in return, I'd work for them five days a week and they wouldn't have to pay me a penny because my company would. And um, and I also wanted to see if there's any demand for any tuition services because there was no guiding in this country at that time. There was no such thing as a fishing guide. There were some gillies, but gillies are normally agricultural workers who work on rivers and row the boats while pretty wealthy people fish for salmon. You know, so that's that's all we had. So a fishing guide, there wasn't even, I didn't even call myself a guide at the time. I just said it was tuition services. But once um, people knew of the um, the fact that they could approach Bristol Water and get somebody to come out with them for the day to try and improve their fishing, I was booked every other day. So I've been doing it now for 30 years, hmm. 29 extra years since then. So this is definitely the best gig I've ever had. And, and uh, like I say, if I could put a few things together, I can make a living. It's got to be pretty special because you, you really have carved out your own path in this because I, I find I talk to a lot of um, people in the fly fishing space that you know from afar you look back and go yeah this person makes a living at it but the reality is there's not really a lot of people that are fully immersed in it that that's all they do they usually have a side hustle has, has that kind of been your experience yeah definitely this nowadays with social media it looks every looks like everybody's a fly fishing guide yeah you know you look on uh, Rutland Water or Graf, and there's always someone saying, "Oh, yeah, I'm guiding so and so today." And I think, well, you don't actually work there; you're a school teacher. So every now and again, you take someone out. Um, so it's not a full-time job, but mm -hmm. you know, social media has given people a platform to really blow their own trumpets and say, "Hey, you know, I'll take you out. I'll do this. I'll guide you." But what I think they find if they leave their current jobs, they find that it's pretty meager. Um, living to be made out of just guiding because in our country we, we only get sort of maybe March through to the end of October right. and then you've got November, December, January, February, four months where your earning capabilities are zero really. So I've got to earn my money in the summer and then try and live on the residue for the winter months. But you know if I can do other things, if I can I run competitions, so I run competitions where I've been sponsored by Lexus and so we've given away 50,000 pound lexus cards at the end of competitions hmm. um which, there's never been anything like that in fly fishing ever 
you know, when it comes down to world championships, the competitions I run, the prizes are phenomenal compared with world and European championships. Hmm. You know, when we won the world championships, I don't think we got anything. We got a medal and um, we got a bottle of whiskey um, <laughs> and, you know, no tackle prizes or anything like that. No was, rods, nothing. Was that all nine? So, yeah, that was oh nine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It seems like yesterday. Yeah. Well, and this, you know, this it's funny. I can remember things. I remember fishing in Poland and being in a session on um, the catch and release, the no kill water at the river San. And we were told this place is alive. It's polluted with fish. And um, when we got there, it wasn't, it was really difficult. And I remember losing a fish at the net that I played out and I had it on a tiny little nymph, like a size 18. And, um, and I got my, tried to get my landing net off my shoulder and it got caught in my, um, in a little lanyard that was holding my forceps. And so the net got tangled up. And as I was pulling at the net to try and release it, the fish got a little bit of strength back again, went under a weed bed and came off. And that one fish cost me the world individual world championships. I ended up third, but I would have won it by a mile with that one extra fish because it was a big, long fish. Hardly anybody caught anything on that session. And it's little things that, like that comes back to you almost every day yeah. thinking about i never think about the times when i've caught loads of fish and done fine it's always that time when you've lost one or it's too small or you just missed out those are the things that stay in my mind i think that's why i love fishing so much because i want to go out and try and put it right again <laughs> well let's talk about the uh, the seminar you have coming up because this is this is timely um i think um for those of us who really want to up our game on the on the still water uh, John is, has got a seminar coming up with Ivo at Smart Angling Inc. Why don't we talk about that a little bit and, and some of the ground, some of the water you're going to be covering in that seminar. Okay, well, the seminar is, it's been advertised with buzzers, um, mainly still water. So buzzer fishing, uh, dry fly fishing, uh, modern sort of techniques like washing line, that sort of thing. It's funny because people ask a lot of questions about buzzer fishing. And buzzers are really important, coronamids. And where I go around the world, you find, I think the buzzers in our country, in the UK, mm-hmm. are bigger than any I've seen and found anywhere else in the world. It's funny, you go to somewhere like Tasmania, where everything is big, all the animals are big, all the fish are big, and the insects are really small, the coronamids. So um, the ones we've got in our country are pretty big. But I don't actually use buzzers very much. I don't actually like the buzzer pattern because it's just, it's such a, the only thing a buzzer looks like, strangely enough, is a buzzer. Whereas a dialback nymph or a pheasant tail nymph mm-hmm. can look like a hoglouse, a shrimp, a buzzer, um, a caddis. Sure. So I like generic sort of patterns rather than close copy imitations. And I think the trouble with buzzers sometimes is that if the fish doesn't want it, it's just going to leave it. Whereas if you've got imitations like a dialback, for example, I've got loads of different variations of a dialback. So some have got jungle cock on them. Some have, some are black. Some have got silver ribs. Some have got red holographic ribs to pick up the sun. So you fish that close to the uh, your top dropper or on the top dropper. So it's up high in the water. Some have got red heads. Uh, because we found years ago, the Carixa, the lesser water boatman, mm-hmm. when it's in its juvenile form, it's got bright red eyes. Oh, yeah. So we started tying red um, 
our heads to our dollbacks. So when they're on crooks, so we use a lot of red-headed dollbacks, things like that. Um, so, uh, sorry. I was going to say that that's very interesting to me. The way the way you look and talk about patterns, because I, I something I ask a lot on this show is suggestive versus realistic. Because I'm a big suggestive pattern fan. Uh, I think when right. we get we, sometimes we hone things down as fly fishers. We look at the entomology aspect of it. We got a picture of this certain chironomid in front of us, and we're like, okay, this has seven ribs and it has a little bit of red on the but you know what so we 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 analyze the heck out of it and then like you say somebody puts what's I, I i haven't fished that pattern a lot but i know you guys fish it on the competitive scene would you call it a doll back yeah so yeah. it's d d i a w l then b a c h it's welsh and it means little devil right I know it's becoming a super, super hot pattern. I see a lot of people tying it. And um, yeah. when I spent some time on the water with uh, some some guys from Team Canada, I was watching them and they were, that's what they fish. That's <laughs> Yeah, it's, it, it, it's a great sort of suggestive pattern. It's really strange. You say that, and I talk to people a lot about this, suggestive patterns versus realistic. Uh, people like Oliver Edwards are fantastic fly tires. Absolutely amazing. Mm-hmm. And I take my hat off to Ollie. I could never tie flies like he does. I mean, his Rikophilia or Hydrostyche nymphs, they've even got the little um, bends uh, where their leg joints would be. I mean, they're so imitative. Right. It's amazing. But to be perfectly honest, that fish is tra- that fly is traveling at umpteen miles an hour through the water. And the main thing is you've got to get that, whatever you're using, down to wherever the fish is and get it near its mouth. And if you do that, it'll eat it. It's not going to count the legs. Trust me, it doesn't. You know, so I'm not worried about really realistic patterns. What I want is a suggestive pattern that will make a fish eat it, even if it doesn't want it. That's yeah, what I want. That makes sense. Something I noticed too with you guys that are is really big that I think would up almost anyone's game is counting things down. I mean, I know you guys do that yeah. a lot. Can you talk a little bit yeah. to that, John? Like, how important is it getting that fly in the exact right zone? Right. Before I do that. Yeah. We were just the suggestive and, um, and the realistic patterns. Mm-hmm. One of the things I always do is spoon my fish. Yep. And not that many anglers do it. So if you're going to kill your fish, you can spoon it. If you're not going to kill the fish, you can do a stomach pump. And the reason I do that is not to find out exactly what it's eating and then put on a, a pattern that looks just like it. I want to find out what stage uh, of the insect that it's eating it's at and what position it'll probably be in in the water. So if, for example, the buzzers in a fish have got legs on them. It means they're just about to hatch. Mm-hmm. So you know they're taking those high in the water. If they've got bloodworm in them, they're on the bottom or they're feeding off the weed. So yeah. they're going to be fishing, feeding deeper. And those sort of things will tell you where the fish are, what they're feeding on and what depth. And then that's when, even if you're fishing a floating line, for example, you can have a long leader. Um, we're not allowed weighted flies in our competitions, but you know, if you're not in a competition, you don't have, to, you can use a weighted fly. So you might have a weighted fly on the point or leave it 20, 30 seconds to get down if you haven't got a weighted fly. And then you can fish other flies on the cast. That's why we fish four flies a lot of the time to be able to cover as many levels as possible. And that's where the counting down starts. So sometimes the fish are down. So when I've cast out, the first thing I normally do, even if I'm fishing nymphs on a floating line, if I want them to get down, I'll give them a line, a good pull to straighten it. That breaks it through the surface film. 
When I'm fishing nymph, anything other than dries, I fish fluorocarbon. With dries, I don't fish fluorocarbon. But with nymphs and everything else, I fish fluoro. And the thicker the fluoro, the better it sinks. So I'll count down. So first of all, I'll count down five seconds and then retrieve it. Next 10 seconds, next 15, next 20, then 30. And you've got to be methodical. And once you start hitting the bottom, you can work out in your mind's eye what depth of water you're fishing in and how long to leave it. And if you start getting takes, say you've left it 20 seconds and you're getting takes on your top dropper, you realize that the fish are actually higher in the water. There's no need to leave it to sink so long. But you can certainly sometimes the whole key when we're doing um, a debriefing session, say on a practice day before a match and there's an England team with, say, 14 anglers in it. What I do, I go around the table and tell everybody to how they fish their day. And most people, all they want to know is what fly we're using, what color is that tag, what, what rib is it? And then somebody might say, okay, I was using uh, a three-foot midge tip, slow sinking tip, and I was leaving it 15 seconds, then retrieving it. Mm -hmm. That is your most important bit of information. And that's the bit that most people don't listen to. So if I'm a team captain or a manager, I never, ever let people see the flies and put them on the table until we finished our debriefing. Because if you put the flies on the table, all they'll do is look at the flies and they won't listen to the advice. And most of the time, the advice is far more important than the fly. You get any old bit of shit down there in the right place, that fish will eat it. Man, They're you, not that clever. You were throwing some nuggets. I love it. I love it. That's good stuff. <laughs> Um, wow. I could go so many places with you here. I, I want to be respectful of your time. Are you still okay for time? Yeah, I'm fine. I, I got to ask you this question because you spend so much time on the water. What's the weirdest thing that's happened to you? Have you ever got, sat back and went, man, I can't believe that happened, whether it's a wildlife encounter or, um, you know, um, anything, anything bizarre happened to you in your time on the water? I've, I've had some really weird things happen. Um, I fished with a chap. I used to fish a lot with a chap called Raj Kora, and Raj is a Kenyan Indian, and he's never been to India, but he's um, uh, he's a dead keen um, fly fisherman. And Raj and I fished together, and we were fishing dry flies, and a fish moved in front of the boat. So he cast in front of him, which was well away from the fish, and I covered the fish. And I saw the fish take my dry, and I struck. And as I struck, he struck. And I said, no, Raj. I said, it's taken me. And he said, no, Jonah, I've got it. And we both hooked the same fish and played the same fish. And another time I was out with him, um, we, were, we were fishing dries again, and we weren't getting any takes at all. I couldn't quite work out what was happening until I was looking really hard at both of our lines. And I said, where your flies are, Raj, there's a natural flying above it, off the water. He said, John, that is my fly. <laughs> and his flies were like a foot off the water. There was so much static electricity in the air that his leader would yeah. not land on the water. It was a foot off the water. Wow. And that happened to me twice when I fished with him. It's the only time it's ever happened, ever. But we could not get our flies to actually sit on the water. They were above the water. That's and it was just for a short spell. There was no thunder, no lightning. It was a nice day. There was just so much static. You could touch a rod and it would crack, you know, with static electricity. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I've, see, I've seen that. <clears throat> it's funny It's funny you said uh, no no thunder because I have experienced that when I was a little too close to lightning. You know, the hairs on your arm start standing up. And you, you yeah, could, yeah. You, it's a feeling. You feel it. It's like, oh, I got to get the heck out of here. But uh, that's weird. 
I wonder what would make that happen. We have to get a physicist on the show. <laughs> I don't know. You know, it's only ever happened twice. And I've been out when there's been thunder and lightning and I've been motoring across the lake and our boats are only four horsepower, so they don't go very fast. Right. And I remember motoring across the lake and I saw this lightning bolt come right down about 500 yards away from where we were motoring. And it came down to earth. And the following day, it actually hit an old oak tree, which is probably more than 100 years old. Wow. And it split it right down the middle. And for a couple of years, half of it stayed alive and the other half was dead. And now it's just a dead old oak tree that the cormorants roost on. But, you know, a little bit earlier, and it could have been us that got hit by that. And then I wouldn't be telling this story now. So ultimate. that's ultimate, the one time I leave the water. Ultimate respect. Yeah, when I see when I see lightning, that's, uh, you know, mess with that. How many times have you smelt that ozone smell when you get close to a, a storm? That one, that one always makes my, my hairs on my arm go. It's very weird, isn't it? Yeah. It is really weird. It is. I mean, it's, and I think sometimes the lightning's only got to strike the water. That's the trouble. If it hits the water, it can come across an arc through it onto the boat itself. Well, and let's. So it's a dangerous time, so it, I'm gone. It doesn't help when you got a 10 foot r- lightning rod in your hand and your, your <laughs> tin foil hat. Oh, boy. No. <clears throat> um, I, I, I would love it if you would paint us a picture. Your dream day, your perfect day. Um, is it a moving water? Is it a still water? You know, what What does it look like? What kind of fish are you chasing? What kind of patterns you're throwing? Who are you hanging with? What are you drinking? Paint us a little picture. <laughs> I think my favorite place to fish in the world is Tasmania. And Tasmania is very similar to England in lots of different ways, even the names of the towns. I was... I was brought up in Bridgewater in Somerset in England, and there's a Bridgewater in, in Tasmania. My brother lives in Launceston in Cornwall, and there's a Launceston, although they call it Launceston in Tasmania. But it's the best stillwater uh, fly fishing for trout that I've ever experienced anywhere in the world. And, um, and the lakes are fantastic, and the scenery is great. And some of the places like Arthur's Lake, where there are three lakes that were joined together, and made into a big lake there were a lot of eucalyptus trees around it and they're they're now all dead and all the bark's fallen off but they're white and they call them ghost gums and when the light's right it looks fantastic when you've got the light shining on these white eucalyptus trees that are coming out the water wow. and there's loads of insects hatched there there's loads of what they call mud eyes which are um dragonfly larvae that swim across the water and there's loads of um gum tree beetles, eucalyptus tree beetles. And when they fly and hit the water, the fish just come up no matter what the weather conditions are. So I would say my perfect day would be on the Great Lake in Tasmania on a really bright, sunny, windy day with cobalt blue skies with gum tree beetles falling on the water. And I kid you not, you've got huge rainbows and huge wild browns in that massive lake and you can see them come from about six foot underneath the water you polaroid them through the window of a wave when they told me about this i didn't believe it and they call it sharking when you're out there and you can see these fish come up really slowly to take an insect or your dry fly and i guarantee if you ever do it the first time a fish comes up to take it you'll strike before it's even three foot below your fly because it's all so clear the water's so clear everything happens in slow motion they've got their mouth open you just cannot help but strike. It's just the most exciting trout fly fishing I've ever done anywhere in the world. And, you know, once again, in this country, it'd be flat, calm, bright sun and fishing dries because you need a lot of skill for that. You've got to be accurate. You've got to cast fast. 
none of this silly little four or five weight rods to try and cover these fish. These are 25 yards away and they won't come any closer. Hmm. So you need a good seven weight, you need weight forward line, you need to be a good caster and you need to be fast, accurate. And if you do that, accuracy, speed, presentation, that's the three elements of dry fly fishing. If you get all three right, you'll be a great angler. If you get one of them wrong, you won't be. Simple as that. You paint a pretty good picture. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I, I was visualizing those gum trees because I've talked to somebody else that told me something similar, actually, and he's, it was an Aussie, and he was telling me how yeah. much he loves fishing Tassie. Wow. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of great. There's the Australians are really good lads as well. They're really they're like Canadians. You know, the English get on really well with Canadian people, with American people, with Australians, New Zealanders, and uh, and they're they've got great waters, and um, mm. and they're they're a bit stuck in their old ways. You know, fishing silly old patterns like red tags and things like that i mean modern dry flies like hoppers bobs bits carrot flies destroy red tags absolutely destroy them and uh you know i've been out there and done it with their guides you know and caught on wild fish like a dozen fish by lunchtime and they've had one on the red tag that sort of thing hmm. it's little things because they're so stuck in their ways they do the same thing and, and things like red tags aren't good flies you know the body material is peacock hurl so it sinks they're relying on a big hackle to keep it up. Right. Whereas if you've got seal sphere in your pattern, you gink the seal sphere and the whole fly stays in the same, in the film. Well, that's, really important. That red tag you're talking about, it's funny that that's one of the first flies I ever fished. And I'm going, you know, I'm like 52, 53. When I think back to when I started in my teens, we used to fish red tags. That was something that um, every fly shop had it. And I never knew what the heck yeah. that thing was imitating. I, I swear sometimes it was a snail. Yeah, very light. Something like, I think that fish aren't, they're not too worried. I think on rivers sometimes you get a certain hatch that unless you've got um, sort of three little microfib uh, fibers for a tail in your pattern, the fish just won't take it because that's what it's taken. But on lakes, I don't think that's quite so apparent. You might still need to use a similar size fly, but when they're coming up to take the fly, as long as it's just about right, and you put it in the right place yeah. at exactly the right time, they will eat it. And sometimes you know they've taken a fly and they've taken your artificial and they know it's wrong, but they can't help it. And you've already struck into them, so it's too late for them. You know, you just know it the way they take it. They're not sipping it down, but they can't help themselves. <laughs> and that's all because you put it in the right place. That's the accuracy, the presentation and the speed. Get it onto it before it moves down or moves on and it will take it. You know, it, whenever I cover a fish on a lake with a dry fly, it never, ever occurs to me that that fish isn't going to take my fly. If it doesn't, it's because I've got it wrong. I'm dying to ask you this question because you've been guiding for 30 years. What's your favorite thing about guiding? Um, it, meeting people, I think, because I fish with all sorts of people from all walks of life. Um I fish with a lot of sort of celebrities and people like that. And once you're fishing, you're all, you've got this common interest. So it's meeting people definitely. And also, for example, if, if a lot of reasons people book me is that they catch fish, but they don't catch as many as they think they should. Uh, and other people are catching more than them. So they want to find out uh, what might be wrong with their technique and that sort of thing. And very often it's a few very small things, mm -hmm. but you put three or four small things together and you get one big thing. 
And um, so going through that, I never want to make people look silly. I never want to make them feel that they're inadequate in whatever they're doing. You know, all I want to do is at the end of the day, they go away feeling they've actually got something out of the day yeah. and it's been worth it. And I get a lot of repeat bookings. So there's one chap I fished with Barry who's booked me sort of 130 times now. And my daughter stayed at his house and that sort of thing with his wife. You know, we're good friends, really good friends. So and yeah. that's it. You either get on with people or you don't. Do you ever, do you ever think, okay, um, now this, this is a buddy now, this isn't a client. I'm sure there's a lot of crossover in, in that space for you. Uh, massively. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you are, you're, you're looking forward to meeting people and we, you know, start laughing sometimes from the minute we meet and then I might eat with them in the pub afterwards and that sort of thing. And you know, you, you then go back and have a few beers together and that's even better than, you know, it, it's great. And you, but people do become really good friends and, you know, you go through all sorts of adversity and some of the clients that, you know, you know, have, have died and it's, it's a miserable time. You know, you go through there, I've taken people who've, you know, the last thing they're doing, this is their last ever fishing trip of their life. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, but it's that important to people. You were saying earlier about fishing. Why is it important? You know, it is, it's, it just is, it's yeah. difficult to say why, but people get so much pleasure out of fishing and it takes them away from that. Sometimes that awful scenario where they're in and just loses them for a while. And I think that's why a lot of professional people, a lot of doctors, medics and that go fishing because it just takes them away. It's escapism. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Amen to that. Um, you said you fish with a lot of famous people. Um, you ever fish with Nick Fowler? No, no, <laughs> I haven't. I know he's avid. He's uh, my pretty dad avid. Was a my dad was a golfer. My dad's dad now, sadly, but my dad would have loved me to have fished with somebody like Mick Faldo, Nick Faldo. Yeah. So I fished with people like Chris Tarrant and yeah. David Seaman, who was the Arsenal goalkeeper, and uh, yeah. and some famous chefs like Raymond Blanc. And uh, I fished I fish with Donald Tom from Canada. Yeah. yeah. He's a living legend as well. He's a great man. Good stuff. Well, and, I, uh, actually, Rand, I'm sure you know Donald. Uh, well, I know of him. I don't obviously know him personally, but um, right. I will tell you that uh, Team Canada, it's almost like everybody on that team knows you and, and seems to know you quite well So, <laughs> and always speaks so highly of you. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to the, uh, the, the seminar you're going to do with Ivo and Smart Angling, and, and hopefully we can dig, dig a little deeper. But um, is... <laughs> I want to ask you kind of a philosophical question before we let you go. And for me, this one's kind of a, it can be emotional for some people, but is there anything, John, that you think we should be doing better at? Is there anything that kind of irks you about the state of fly fishing or are we just all good? Um, quality of anglers nowadays is better than it's ever been. There's no doubt about it. Um, our tackle is better than it's ever been. Um, uh, all fish are certainly in more danger from anglers nowadays of being caught because we're all a lot better fly fishing, any sort of fishing, really. I think we're paying a lot more respect to our environment, which is good. Um, it annoys me that governments are allowing pollution. We've got a big problem with our government who've just let the water companies, who are our biggest pollutants of our waterways in this country, strangely enough, they've let them off um, with discharging raw sewage. And it really is annoying, you know, so I think we need to look after our rivers because once we lose our rivers, once they become too badly polluted, you're not going to get it back again. You're not going to get your insect life back again. Um, and also um, our still waters as well. We need 
the fishermen really are our guardians of our still waters because nobody else really worries too much about our lakes. Um, but I, I don't like um, the anti-brigade um, against fishing because without the anglers, nobody would be looking after fish. That's for sure. They'd all be eaten by cormorants by now or, you know, something else or polluted uh, out of existence. And I think really with my kids, I've got three kids, well, kids now, they're all grown adults, but I taught them all to fish. I taught them all about the environment. I try to, and hopefully they would, they'll come back to fishing and that in a later uh, part of their lives and maybe teach their kids as well when they have them. Mm. But yeah, we do need to protect our environment. That's for sure. And uh, I think that's, that's probably the main, the main thing that irks me at the moment. John, if, if somebody wants to follow you on social media, um, visit your website, um, book you for seminars, um, come hear you talk, where do we find what you're up to? Where's the best place? Okay, I'm on Facebook, John Horsey Fly Fishing, and Twitter and Instagram. Uh, my email, I've got a website, www.johnhorsey.co.uk. Um, so all my contact details are on there, so people can contact me there. Um, and basically, that's it. So I'm easy to get hold of. Anything exciting you got coming up in the next little bit? Like, where are we at with the competitive scene? I'm, I know with COVID, things have kind of been, it's been tough, let's face it. But um, are things starting to pick up in your mind? Or what, what does 2022 look like as we start this, this crazy year? Well, we've got our home international scene. We haven't had an international now since 2020. And we've, so we're all waiting. We've qualified for the team. So I'm supposed to be fishing for England in September in North Wales on a place called Trosfinith. Um, so we're hoping that will go ahead. And we're hoping that our qualifiers to get back into the England team, because we're not invited into the team. We've got to qualify into our Lockstar teams and Rivers teams. So I'm hoping they'll all go ahead this year. The competitions I run, I've booked the finals on both of them, but I'm not having heats because if people book their accommodation and then they're told, okay, we've got another lockdown, sometimes the hotels won't give them their money back and it, then they get on to me and say, look, what am I going to do about this? And I think until we've got things sorted for a year, I'm not going to have a lot of heats. I'm going to have a final and a semi-final so people can still compete. Because um, people want to. There's no doubt about it. Mm -hmm. um, fishing during lockdown, fishing was one of the things in our country that the Angling Trust really worked hard with our government to get people allowed to go fishing. Because quite often you're on your own, you're outside, yeah. even if you're in a boat, you're two meters apart. And so fishing, they sold, um, normally we sell a million rod licenses a year. And that's normally to find out, that's, that's a good benchmark as to how many people are actually fishing. There's people that don't buy the rod licenses, of course, you know, so there's more. But during 2021, we sold 1.5 million. So it shows that if people are staying home, they want things to do. And they're going either going back to fishing or trying it for a first time. So I think with, with the Angling Trust, we're trying to, which is our governing body, we're trying to get people um, back into fishing again or to get them to try it. Because the problem is kids won't try it unless their parents get them to do it because they've got so many things to do. It's very difficult. So... You know, we do need younger people in it, but we just want more people full stop into fishing, I think, because it's a great sport, you yeah. know, and we, we look that people don't even kill their fish most of the time with trout. We used to kill them all the time. Most people put them back now. Exactly. You know, if you want to yeah. take a fish to eat, that's fine. It used to be, um, did you get your limit? Nobody says that anymore. <laughs> no, yeah. they don't. And it's, it's good because, you know, we used to call it limititis. 
you know, I bagged up, I've got my limit. And now, you know, we're doing catch and release. So you can carry on fishing all day. You release your fish, you use barbless hooks, you release them from the net so you don't even touch them. Those fish will survive, no problem. The sad reality of rainbow trout in our country and in a lot of other countries is that they don't survive winters very well at all. If you get 5% residual over wintered rainbows on any of our reservoirs in the UK, you're very, very lucky. Does that That's ever, how small it is. Does that ever strike you as odd that, um, you know, carp can basically, those things are bulletproof. Bass, they're bulletproof. Yep. Yep. A lot of these fish are like they're, they do, their DNA is amazing. And we choose to chase probably one of the weakest, don't we, really? <laughs> I know. Well, the thing is, our indigenous trout, the brown trout, they'll live up to 20, 30 years old. And, you know, if they become ferox, which is just a normal brown trout that for some reason known only to itself, it starts feeding on uh, maybe char in some of the big locks we've got around the country. They'll grow to 20, 30 years old and they'll get to 20, 30 pounds. But our rainbow trout, they're imported from North America, as you know. So, you know, in our country, they live, what, five years? Mm. So if you're putting a two, two and a half pound trout in a reservoir, it's in its third year. Yeah. So you're basically putting a senior citizen in a lake, which during the winter months, they're so dumb. They just, if they just went to the bottom and found hoglouse or um, shrimp, they could feed all winter. But for some reason they don't. And, uh, and they get um, predated on by cormorants as well. And, you know, so they don't, they don't last very well, which is why we've got to keep the stocks going all the time. But we've got a great quality of fish, especially on the Bristol waters. You know, we've got, perfect thin rainbow trout that if you caught them in new zealand you would say wow this is why we come to new zealand because we're catching these fantastic fish well we catch them on chew and blagden they're not horrible stockies i can assure you they're fantastic when you're sitting on those boards lock style do you ever just go man i wish i could have a nice comfortable chair <laughs> cushion oh we back. have we've, oh, you do no we've we're, we're all allowed boat seats yep Ah. And uh, so we've got seats that we take with us and they've got a back that um, is padded and a seat that's padded. So we um, attach them to the thwarts. And so we've got, we all use them now. Nobody just sits on a plank anymore. Nobody. Mm. Good stuff. So we can buy them in this country. They're great. <laughs> um, so without those, my God, I don't think I could be a fishing guide. My back would be done. <laughs> you know, I know I'm talking to a truly competitive fly fisher when you're you're saying you love those windy days, those hard to fish days. Um, yeah. Especially when it comes to lock style, because I mean, most people I know as recreational angler, angler, when that wind comes up, it's not usually pretty, and you kind of, you know, there's not usually any hatches going on. Fishing gets difficult, but I know that that's when you guys kind of there's a little light bulb that goes on. It's like, okay, this is going to be fun. <laughs> Yeah, we, the trouble is we live only about 30 miles from the coast here. And so we've got the winds that blow across the Atlantic. They blow over Ireland, then they blow over the Irish seas. Then they come up the Bristol Channel, which is close to us, and they blow straight across Chew Valley Lake. So we get windy days from the southwest a lot. So we just got to put up with it. But the killer conditions, I can tell you, anywhere in the world is sun and wind. You very rarely get a coronamid hatch of any description in sun and wind. It just doesn't happen. Sun and flat calm, they'll hatch. Overcast, they'll hatch. Rain, they'll hatch. Sun and wind, they don't. And fish just turn off. That's the big problem. And that's the problem most people don't understand. There's a lot of the time when you're out there fishing, the fish are not feeding. So how can you put that extra fish in the boat when they don't really want it? And that's the key. 
Love I it. wish I knew what it was. <laughs> I love it. John, thanks for doing this. I, I thoroughly appreciate it. And I would love to chat to you again. Maybe we can pick a topic because I feel like I'm all over the map with you, but I, it's been a good map and I, I've enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Yeah, Mark, I've really enjoyed it again. So we'll do it any, whenever you want. It'd be great. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by theflycrate.com. Thank you for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Your feedback matters. Let us know if there's a person or topic you'd like discussed. Email us at mark at flyfishing97.com. Until next time, tight lines and we'll see you on the water. Mm-hmm.